Well, we, uh, this last week has been a, an interesting week. If you were with us, I know many of you were with us last Sunday night, and it was an amazing uh, uh, celebration service, uh, our largest one-time gathering we've ever had in our 100-plus year history. Uh, uh, some amazing things that happened there, uh, great stories. If you missed it, listen to the podcast. You can try to get as much as you can. I think it's uh, recorded. I don't know. I'll find out. But um, uh even uh, hearing the testimonies of, of some of our people and the way that they are responding here and about Heidi and Taylor Lindblom, that they are uh, this summer moving to the Middle East to be missionaries uh, and to serve, uh, uh, to hear about the sacrifices of, of the people of Beach Point. Uh, 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 we, we, on last, uh, the Commitment Sunday, we were at th- uh, 3.5 million. Uh, going into today, we're almost at 3.8 million uh, that has been given and pledged for uh, all the things between Beach Point Huntington Beach and Beach Point Fountain Valley. So really exciting to see all the sacrifices. And I'll tell you, like Sunday night, like uh, that was sky high. That was about as, uh, such a great night seeing everyone. I couldn't even see the patio. I didn't even know what was going on in the patio because there were so many people just having fun, eating as many cookies and taking home as many bags of popcorn as they could. I mean, it was, it was pretty awesome. Uh, but uh, uh, to be as high as you can on Sunday night and then to be about as low as I've ever been on Monday, we had the unexpected passing of a, a great guy in our church named John Campbell. And, and uh, uh, we know he's with the Lord now. But uh, in that, uh, you know, it's just it's it's always hard to lose someone, especially when it's a, a young dad. And so there will be a service for him on April 2nd at 10 a.m. And we'll remember his life and faith. And we'll talk about our hope and the resurrection and, and our, our uh, faith in eternal life. And so we encourage you uh, to come and support uh, the family. But we have to pray. I, I need to pray uh, before we jump into this. So let's pray together. Lord, we, we enter a prayer in which we think of where this text is going to go, where these songs have gone, uh, what Brian read. Uh, we, we would pray today, uh, Hosanna. We would, we would say uh, with praise um, and, and with expectation, save us. Save us, Lord. Um, we feel the brokenness of our world, maybe, maybe even more so uh, today than, than we did a week ago. And so we just ask, Lord, that you give us strength And uh, Lord, you open our hearts to see you as the true king that you are. We know that if we can see you and we can understand what your kingdom is like, Lord, this, this broken world will not intimidate us. It will not take away our strength. But we will be confident that you have come to rescue and redeem and make all things right. And so would you open our eyes to those very things in this time. We pray this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a presidential election year. Um, You might have heard like some stuff on the news. You might have seen something on Facebook, but there's there's a a, a new president coming. And as you've watched really over, I would say really over the past year, what you have seen and what you're experiencing is every single candidate has in essence made a promise that they will make it right. 
I will make it right. I will fix what is wrong. And for some of them, that has been purely through kind of motivational uh, speaking. Others have tried to give you detailed, complex plans. And, and wherever it is, somewhere in between there, the message is very strong. The message is very clear. Vote for me. Put your faith in me and I will fix what is wrong. I will make it right. And I think you and I know that even in Orange County, although we may not feel it in the same way as other parts of the country, we, we see the issues. We, we experience it. We see, we, we can look around in, in Huntington Beach and in Fountain Valley. We can see issues of poverty and immigration. We can see education and health care. We can uh, see all that stuff right in our own backyard. We don't have to listen to candidates talk about this and kind of wondering where in the world are they talking about. We, we can see these things. Some of you feel these things uh, uh, rather acutely. But we feel kind of something more than that. We feel the brokenness of this world. And, and even in a week like this with John's passing, we, we feel the brokenness of this world. We, we feel the need for this world to be made right, for someone to make it right, that this can't be all there is. And, and so it's important that we begin to understand kind of a bigger picture that long before any American politician came to make things right, that God had promised that he would make things right with his creation. That even though we had rebelled and, and we had chosen to uh, ascend to the throne ourselves, even in that moment, our God who loves us the way he does had promised to send us a king who would make everything right. And so this morning, I want to give you a big idea, and I want to show you through the, the Palm Sunday uh, passage that Jesus is the one king who will, who will make everything right. See, the scriptures tell us this, that there was a point in Jesus' ministry where he came. And it says that he turned his face towards Jerusalem. And what it means is that he set his course towards Jerusalem. And when he set his course to Jerusalem, he made a decision that he was going to go there and that was going to be the, his final journey there. It's almost like you going on vacation and packing a coffin with you that, that you knew. He knew that that would be the place he would give his life. Nothing would deter him. Nothing would stop him. He was going there. He had a purpose in going there. And so I want, to see, I want us to look today at the day that he arrived. And so to do that, I need you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, it's page 988 in the Bibles in front of you. Now, as we're looking at this passage, what we call Palm Sunday, this entry, this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, one of the things that's very interesting for you, and maybe you know this, but the book of Matthew, when Matthew writes his gospel account, the account of Jesus' life, his target audience is a Jewish reader. And so one of the things when you're reading through the Matthew account is that you're going to notice that he wants to show the fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus. He wants the Jewish reader to say, don't you remember the prophet said this? That's that prophecy coming true. That's that prophecy coming true. That's that promise, prophecy coming true. And he wants to so that they see that God's promised king, God's promised Messiah, his promised savior has come for them and his name is Jesus. So as we watch through this, as we walk through this, you will see this kind of happen a few times in the text. And so let's, let's begin with reading verses 1 through 5, just to kind of set the tone a little bit. Start with the first five verses to see what's happening. Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage 
on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and that he will send them right away. The Lord, uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to your daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let's stop there for a second. And the first thing I want you to see is this, is that in Jesus, God has sent us the king we need. The king we need. Now, in Jesus' ministry, there were many times that the people wanted to make him king. Sometimes it says that they actually by force, they were going to force him to be their king. And Jesus up to this point has resisted it every time. He's slipped away. He's told them no. He, he's, up to this point, Jesus has resisted and protected this identity. But from this moment on, he will, he will, he will embrace this identity. And we see this uh, so clearly in this moment. In fact, in the, here's the first moment where we see where Jesus not only embraces this identity as king, but Jesus really is orchestrating this moment that he is the king. He's not a king as he wants to show made by the people, but he is God's promised king. He is the king that God has sent. Now, this is a rather dynam- dynamic moment in Jesus' life, but it's a rather dramatic moment in the life of Jerusalem. So it's the time of the Passover, Uh, There might have been, some scholars think, there might have been up to 2 million people that had come upon this city. If you were a Jew within 20 miles of Jerusalem, you were required by law. From all the corners of the earth, uh, 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 Jews would would come for this feast, for this this moment, for this this time to to celebrate. And the, the messianic expectation was sky high. If there was ever kind of a fever pitch moment where everyone was excited, like maybe this is the time where the, where the, the Messiah, the Savior, the one, our promised one will rise up and save us, especially right now, and save us from the, this Roman oppression. Maybe this will be the time. And so it's, it's a highly dramatic time, but we see in this that this is not kind of a random decision by Jesus. This is a very careful decision by Jesus. And there's very careful preparation. See, what we see is in these first verses, we see that Jesus is carrying out a plan. He's sent his disciples ahead. There's a, there's a, a village about a mile outside, and they are to go there. They are to, to get this donkey and the donkey's baby, this colt that, that's uh, tied up with uh, her. They're, they're to get these. And as they're doing this, as they're, they're getting I mean, you can tell Jesus not only has friends there, he seems to have a friend that even has like a secret password uh, with. And so when this moment comes and when they get the donkey and when Jesus comes and when they mount Jesus on, this is, this is an incredible moment. In fact, the whole city, this whole village is going to come with them. There's going to be this incredible procession so that when he enters in, as we'll see, there's this, this incredible moment. And this is reason to celebrate. There's reason for the people to celebrate. You can imagine how, how excited they are that finally our king has come. God has kept his promise. We see this in, in this unique way that the, the prophecy is fulfilled. You see it in verse 5, which is a, uh, the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Say to your daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
See, the Jews knew their Bibles. They knew in seeing this and experiencing this, they, this was a moment. They, they could see this. In fact, even as we'll start seeing their, their cries of Hosanna, save us, this, this exclamation of praise, that they'd even start saying Hosanna to the son of David. This is, this is the king, the promised king, the son of David who has come for them. And it's reason to celebrate. And it's reason to celebrate because God has kept his promise. And anytime God keeps his promise, it is worthwhile for us to notice, even, even in the 21st century. It's good for us to see that God is a promise-keeping God. Because sometimes it feels like in our lives that God is slow in keeping his promise. Or maybe he's missed it. He's gotten misguided, misdirected, and we're trying to help him figure out how he could better uh, uh, serve us and keep the promises that he's made to us. But, but I want you to be reminded as you see this, that they've been waiting and waiting. They knew it would happen, but they just hadn't experienced it yet. But just as God has kept that promise, he will keep the promises he's made to us as well. And so it's, there's a reason to celebrate. But the, the thing that's so hard about this promise and, the, and this celebration is this is a rather difficult thing for us in some ways to celebrate because the acknowledgement of Jesus as king means that we have to acknowledge that we cannot sit on the throne. To acknowledge that Jesus is a king is a direct threat to my kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but I like sitting on the throne. Don't, don't visualize that. Um, I, I like wearing a crown. I like the robe and, and I like calling the shots. I like being able to be in control. I like to be able to orchestrate the things that are going to happen. I realize I may be the only one in the room that feels that way, but when Jesus comes and declares that he is king, he is saying to me in essence, and you are not. And Jesus is confronting us in our kingdom. See, for us to acknowledge Jesus as king is probably one of the most significant choices we make in becoming authentic followers of him. Because if all you want from Jesus is for him to be a good teacher in your life, if all you want from him is that he be this great moral example, if you want to pick and choose what it is about him you like and embrace that, then, then, then you've missed the fact that he doesn't give you that choice. He doesn't give you the choice of just making him a teacher or an example. He has asked you to submit to him as king. And so when Jesus comes, sometimes we realize he's not the king I necessarily want, but I can begin to see that he is the king I need. And the best way to see that he is the king we need is to see the second thing that I want you to see is that to make things right in our lives, he comes to serve. He comes to serve. Jesus is like no other king because he does come to rule and he does come to reign in our heart and our life, but he does that by serving us and giving his life for us. Notice as the passage continues, we pick up in verse six. It says this, the disciples went out, they did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on, on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Verse 8 says that the crowd began to receive Jesus' king. They, they, they began to take off their cloaks and place them on the ground. They ran out. They cut off palm branches. They began to wave them. As they d- had done in previous, these, these military victories that they had in their past, it was a kind of a sign of victory that was coming. And they began to call out this word, Hosanna. This word, Hosanna, that means save us. It's a, 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 a word of praise. It's praise to the one who saves us. But it's a call out to say, save us, save us. In fact, when they see uh, Hosanna in the highest, they're saying, even all the heavens join with us in calling out to God to deliver us. They're praising him and they're praying, God, save us, save us. But notice how Jesus enters in. Here he comes to save them, but he's not riding in on this big white stallion. He's not on this big war horse, this conquering military leader. But as the prophet had said, here he comes gentle, riding on the colt of a donkey. Now, his gentleness is not weakness. And if you need to to see that more clearly, go back to the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 9 and read the first eight verses where it's very clear that Jesus, the king, uh, will take care of his enemies. No, this is instead strength under control. This is the one who, when they will come to arrest him and, and they'll fight for him, he'll say, tell him to stop. And he'll remind them, if I wanted this to stop, I could call down legions of angels. And the point isn't that they would just defend me, that they would, they would annihilate everyone. But he says, in essence, I'm choosing not to let that happen. This is the same king who on his final meal on Thursday with his, his subjects, with his disciples, with his friends, he will come. And he will take off his outer garment and he will wrap a towel around his waist. And he will begin to wash every single one of their feet, including the very one who will uh, deceive him and betray him. This is the same king who when the, the Romans take him and nail him on a cross, when they strip down his clothes and gamble it away, when they place him up there naked and beaten and scarred, not just to kill him, but to humiliate him. This is the same king who will cry out to heaven, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What king would give his life for his subjects? Isn't it fair? You and I always want to ascend to the throne. We as his subjects always want to be the king. But when is it that the king would humble himself and take the place of his servants? You might remember there's a moment uh, leading up to this. There's a, there's, it's, a, it's a huge moment. And Jesus is asking, as they're making their way towards Jerusalem, they're sitting one, one uh, day, and Jesus asked the question, who do the people say I am? And they begin to think through it and they begin to give these different responses. Some say, well, some think, you're, some think you're John the Baptist and you came back to life. Others think you're maybe one of the great prophets that's returned. And then he looks to his disciples 
just as he really says to us today, and he asks this question, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And the silence is broken by Peter. And Peter says, you're God's king. You're the Messiah. You're his promised king. You're the one who's come to save us. And Jesus affirms that this is right and this is true. And then he begins to say something. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the king. But I have not come to live but to die. And he begins to tell him this. He begins to say how he must suffer. Jesus says, I must suffer and I must die and I must rise. And I don't know if you remember the story, but Peter has had this amazing moment where where even Jesus says, it's the father that has revealed this to you. And Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. Can you imagine what it would be like to get in the face of the king? And Peter begins to tell him, no, never. I will never let that happen. You will never suffer. You will never die. And the language is so strong. The word rebuke there is so strong. It is the the same kind of word that that Jesus uses when it says that he rebukes the demons. That's how strong it is. And he's saying this, I will never let this happen. Why is he so upset? Because he has learned since he was a little boy that the king would come and he would ascend to the throne and he would, he would live in victory. But Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the king. I am God's promised one. But I have not come to live but to die. I have come to serve. I have not come to take power but to lose it. I'm not here to rule but to serve. And that is how I will make everything right in the world and in your life. And Jesus doesn't just say that he, that he would suffer. He says that he must suffer. In fact, he says it two different times, that he must suffer, that he must die. And that word must is the most crucial word of what he's saying, that this is what he's going to do. His mind is made up. His will is made up. He's going there. He must suffer. He must give his life for us. He must be killed. And Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must be resurrected. Not just that I've come to die, but I have to die. It is a necessity for you. And this, friends, is the good news. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of King Jesus. Not that this king came, he was more wise than any king in any country ever. The good news isn't just that if you read about him, if you become more like him, you'll have a better version of you. That is not the good news. The good news is that the king of heaven has come and he has given his life for you so that he can make everything right in your life and in this world. This is the good news. What king gives himself up for his servants? He's come to serve in an effort to serve to make everything right. Maybe this is the hardest part, and Brian kind of alluded to it as we began to read. That when King Jesus makes things right in our lives, it is not easy. It is not easy. And we see this in the last thing. If you think of the words that Brian read, it tells us that Jesus went into the temple And he began to to cleanse the temple. He began to turn over the tables. He began to, to, to chase out those people that were selling the doves and the money changers. 
It says that he then went and people came to him and he would heal them. And as Brian pointed out, that the, the children began to praise him. They began to, to talk, uh, cry out, just as they had heard their parents, Hosanna. Hosanna to the, to the son of David. And the religious leaders, the ones who should have captured it, they should have known the best, are indignant. They are so furious at what they're hearing. This incredible thing that's happening And when we begin to think about what happens in that last section, all these different instances, we begin to think about this. We begin to think about this unique way. In the last two months, if you've been here, you've been challenged to act in daring faith. You've been challenged to to go after something God is inviting you to. To not be afraid, but in faith to grow or sow or go. And there's just incredible stories of so many of you that have been willing to, to, to do these things. And you know, if it, if, if it takes daring faith to do it, it's not easy, is it? It's not easy. But you have entered into this because you believe it is good and right and it will ma- it'll make things right in your life. It'll bring life to you. So when this servant king comes into our lives, sometimes, sometimes he has to cleanse. Sometimes in our life, he has to turn over a table. Sometimes he has to chase out those that are, 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 are making, in essence, a mockery of, of what God has. Where does the king need to cleanse your life? Where does he need to cleanse your life right now? What does he need to chase out? What table does he need to turn over to say, it can't be like this anymore? It will never be right in your life as long as you allow this to happen. Where does this king need to come and cleanse? Where does he need to come and heal? Some of us realize there are parts of our life that unless God comes, unless unless the king of heaven touches us, that this part of our life will remain broken. And it may be this morning what you need to be able to say is, Lord, there is, I don't know how I'm going to fix this. And unless you come, the king of heaven, and you place your hands on this situation in my life, I don't know how I'm going to to survive the brokenness. Only you can heal me. Where do you need healing? Where does this king need to heal you? Where does he need to challenge your thinking? You see there's these religious leaders and they're, they're caught in their worldview. And when Jesus comes, they, he, they, he turns their worldview upside down. And I'm just going to tell you, if, if you're going to take yourself off the throne, the only way really you can take yourself off the throne is to change your worldview, to admit that you don't belong as the one calling the shots. But if he's going to be king, you're going to realize he's going to reshape your worldview. You're going to have to see the world through his eyes. Maybe you feel that right now. Where does he need to confront your thinking? Maybe there's traditions or there's, there's just things you've always thought would, it would be this way. But when you look at this passage, you realize I'm really no different than those religious leaders. I am so stuck in my view on this. I cannot let it go. And even though it's right in front of me, he's right in front of me. And he's just so calmly saying, doesn't have to be like this. I am indignant. 
I just do not want to change. Where does he need to correct your thinking? There's one, one passage. I, I just want to show you one verse as we're closing. And, and, and Luke tells it this way, that, that when Jesus had come and, and he, he was looking over Jerusalem, that he, that he wept. And the reason that he wept is he saw the unbelief. He knew of his rejection and he began to weep because he knew, at, he knew that they were going to reject him. And as a result of rejecting him, as a result of saying, please do not be our king, that they were in essence saying we, would be, we want to do this on our own. We want to be our own king. We want to call the shots. We want a different king. And Jesus begins to weep and he begins to speak of all the destruction that, that's going to come to them. And, and here's the thing. Sometimes the king has to confront unbelief. He has to confront unbelief because if we choose to sit on the throne ourselves, if, if he doesn't confront that with us, if we are left to ourselves, we hear the same warning that we are on our own, in our own strength. And you might have been able to make it this far, but you will not beat death and you will not beat judgment on your own. And that is why this king has descended. He has humbled himself. He has left heaven for you so that you would not have to face that in your own strength. You would not have to face that in your own power. Maybe this morning you need to let this king confront your unbelief and your choice to sit on on the throne yourself. Today is a day to take yourself off that throne and in faith place him and so I want, to, I want to end our time with a question. I think it's an important uh, a statement, and then we'll uh, enter it in as a question. See, the statement is this, that Jesus can't just be the king. He must be your king. He must be your king. It's one thing to acknowledge him as far as the king, the king of Israel, the king of that time. But he doesn't give you that choice. What he's saying is, no, you must make me your king. He can't just be your friend and your partner. He can't be your genie or your butler. He doesn't want to just be your judge. He wants to be your king. Is Jesus your king? He must be your king. He will accept no role any less than that. And if you've never, if you've never made him your king, in just a moment, we're going to have a a time to pray. I would encourage you today to humble yourself, to take yourself off the throne, and to allow him to sit on the throne of your life. Allow him to begin the work that will make all things right. He will bring salvation into your life now and forever. Let him begin that work today. Those of us who've already surrendered our life to Jesus know as much as we knew that decision was right, good, and true, we still struggle with wanting control. We still struggle with wanting to be the king. And so let me ask you, what would it look like to surrender all of your life to his reign? What would it look like to surrender your love life, your relationships, your career, your future, and say, you're in control. You reign, you rule, you call the shots. Your finances, your social life. Is he the king over every sphere of your life? 
Is he the king? Is there a part of your life that you know today you just have to surrender over to his rule? We go into Holy Week pointing to the cross. And and for many of us, really, we have to once again embrace. This is the way the Apostle Paul said it as he wrestled with this himself. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Some of us today, as we enter Holy Week, we need, to, we need to die to ourself again. We need to see our life being lived in him, in his crucifixion, in his suffering, and in his resurrection. We need to be able to say, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. And so I want to pray for that. I want us to pray together. See, as he's making all things right he invites us to join him in this. And so beyond just a personal thing, what you're going to find yourself being captured in is joining him in making things right in this world. That's why we planted Beach Point Huntington Beach. That's why you're seeing things like Laundry Love and Oakview and all these different ministries that are happening there right off the bat. That's why this church has existed for over 100 years is to not just see our own lives become better, but for us to join the king in making things right all over the world. That's why we're doing the things that we do. And so let's pray for his reign, his rule in our lives, our city, and our world. Let's bow together. As we begin a moment of prayer, let me just ask you to think. It's so important that you recognize you need a king. Someone is going to sit on the throne of your life. And the sooner you admit that, then you can get to figuring out who is the best person to sit on the throne of my life. And can I encourage you to once again see him riding in on a donkey, humble. He's not coming just to ascend to power. He's coming to give his life on your behalf. He knows what's coming on Friday. And he is willingly submitted to that. To honor the Father and to bless us. And if you have never taken off the crown, if you've never taken off the robe, if you've never taken yourself off the throne of your own life, I want to encourage you this morning to say to him this morning, King Jesus, please today come and sit on the throne of my life. Take over my life. Lead me. I cannot save myself. Hosanna. Save me. Save us. You have my life. Thank you for giving your life for me. And for all of us, we need a moment just to sit there and think of the things, the ways that we are trying to creep back on that throne, the areas of our life that we're not allowing him to to reign and rule in. Admit those, confess those. And this morning, uh, hand those things over to him. And in just a moment, uh, take a moment to pray. In just a moment, we'll sing.
and we'll worship and we'll remember him.